Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. From Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Coming up, we reflect on the fight for marriage equality in Connecticut. On this day, 10 years ago, the state became the second in the country to grant marriage licenses to same-sex couples. We'll hear from one of the Connecticut couples who signed on as plaintiffs in the landmark case. We'll also talk with a longtime advocate for LGBTQ rights and Standback about the issues she and others are continuing to fight for today. First, Veterans Day this year fell on Sunday, marking 100 years since the armistice was signed to end World War I. Later, November 11th will be recognized as a federal holiday to honor the American men and women who serve in the U.S. military. Sometimes stories that highlight the contributions of veterans are unknown because they aren't passed down from one generation to next. That's what happened to a Hartford, Connecticut man named David McGee. Connecticut Public Radio reporter David DeRoche picks up the story. He joins me now in studio. David, welcome back to the show. So happy to be here, Lucy. Tell us about this Hartford man again, David McGee, and um, how he was able to figure out the story of his grandfather. Sure. So David called, you know, we have a newsroom line, and David called the the newsroom line, which we all take turns answering, and I just happened to answer it. And as he starts telling me the story, I was like, wow. And it's very rare that somebody calls with this just really compelling story. And so I was just really sucked into it. And and David has this amazing story. So he was really close to his grandmother. He was an only child, really close to his grandmother growing up. And she kept the suitcase under her bed. And she kept it wherever she went, wherever she lived, she kept it under her bed. And she really didn't share the contents with anybody. Like her children didn't know what was in it. Nobody knew what was in it other than her. And she never talked about her husband um, or her first husband uh, who died in World War II. So David had no idea who his grandfather was. He had no idea what was in the suitcase, but he knew the suitcase was special because he had seen his grandmother go into the suitcase um, and he saw pictures and he said, well, what was that? And she said, well, those are my parents. And she never made any other, other comments about it. So he knew that the suitcase was special. And so when she died, he really wanted that suitcase. And so he inherited the suitcase, but it took him over a decade before he could open it up. He wanted to get um, emotionally prepared to, to, to do it because he was really close with his grandmother. And um, he got he started developing an interest in genealogy, and he realized, you know, hey, there's got to be some really interesting stuff in the suitcase. And so eventually he was able to open it up, and that's when this whole story just sort of takes off. You were able to uh, chat with David McGee in his home, and he actually showed you yeah. this suitcase from his deceased grandmother. Let's, let's hear a clip of what he told you about it. It has that, it has that musty smell to it. Um, so... She had it for many, many years. This suitcase was started with uh, documents that were sent to her from the military, as you can see, and it continued to grow uh, until the date of her death. So he mentioned documents, uh, David DeRoche. What exactly was in that suitcase? 
so, you know, he opens it in front of me and it, it really was just like a magical moment. You know, you see just these old documents. They're falling apart. They're fraying at the edges. They're browning. Um, you know, he has original letters that his grandfather had written to his wife. And, you know, at the top of the letter, it says from somewhere in Germany. He didn't even know where he was. Um, but David points out that, you know, in this letter, you know, he's he's you know going through Germany. Um, he was in an ordnance division. So what they did was they handled uh, spent munitions. They would go into the battlefield after a battle and they'd find spent uh, spent munitions or things that were still live and they'd gather them and they they would uh, either dispose of them or store them. And so, you know, it was a really dangerous environment, obviously. Um, but in this letter, you don't get a sense of any of that. You know, he's asking about his kids. He had, a child was born when he was overseas. Uh, so there's this letter. There's um, Western Union telegrams announcing the birth of his, his child. Um, there are trekking maps that he drew. He drew maps of his track through Germany. And there are locations on the map that note where they expected bombs to be. And, and if you look at the map and you, the, his hand-drawn map and you compare it to an actual map, I mean, the scale is amazing. Like he was just – he had this really uh, amazing ability to, to, uh, to you know, map things. For, and he, he, he had this uncanny ability also to, uh, uh, to, to do a variety of different things. Like he was, his, his handwriting was impeccable. His, like, his drawing was excellent. And what was interesting was that uh, in those times, the military were segregated. But uh, he so he served in an African-American unit. But David has evidence to show that he was actually pulled out of that unit to serve with some white soldiers because he, he had high. Um, he was adept at a lot of different things. And so that was typically that's what that was something that happened back then. So he could have been like one of the forerunners of, of desegregating the military, which is kind of interesting. Oh, in that suitcase, he also discovered that his grandfather, where did he die? He, so he discovered that his grandfather died in an explosion in June of 1945. So, um, but he didn't know where his grandfather was buried. His grandmother had told him that he was buried uh, in a local cemetery. But when David went to that cemetery, he didn't find any record of him. So, um, so eventually, as he's going through the suitcase, you know, he has um, – there's all this information about what his grandfather had did, had done, and, and and you know all these informations information about his service, but he couldn't find where he was buried, and so that's when he turned to the internet, and that's when things got even more interesting. Uh, you're hearing David DeRoche, a reporter for Connecticut Public Radio here on Where We Live. As we talk about a story uh, that David, David produced for uh, Veterans Day, uh, this journey that a Hartford, Connecticut man uh, took uh, to find out um, the story of his grandfather who served in World War II. His grandfather was Sergeant Willie Williams? Correct. So you said he went to the internet. And how did he uh, figure out uh, more about his grandfather's service in the Netherlands? So he, he essentially just typed in his grandfather's name. And, you know, one of the, most, the first thing most of us do when we go to the Internet to learn about somebody, he just typed in his grandfather's name. And eventually he found this website called Black Liberators of the Netherlands. And it was started uh, by a woman named Mika Kierkels in the Netherlands in, about, in 2009. And she had come across um, – she's a historian. And she had learned that there were 172 black American soldiers buried in the Netherlands. Now, there are 8,301 American graves in the cemetery in the Netherlands. But she was able to, to figure out that there's a code that the military would use to indicate the soldier's race. 
And so she learned that there are 172 black soldiers buried there. And so she knew that there was this history of segregated military. And she also knew that there's this also history of sort of um, or lost history, right? The things that we don't want to remember because we're, we're ashamed of the history. And, and black soldier service is, is a big part of that. Most of us have heard of the Tuskegee Airmen, but many of us have not heard about the, the black soldiers who built the Lido Road or the Red Ball Express. So there are all these really, really cool stories of history involving African-American soldiers that have sort of been lost. And so Mika's goal, Mika Kirkel's goal from the Netherlands is to uncover their stories and bring those stories to the world. So when David found her website, through his name, through his grandfather's name, he got really excited. He's like, there's my grandfather. He's, he's buried in the Netherlands. And so he made that connection. And then, you know, he's, he's been to the Netherlands. And it's just like the whole story is just it's super heartwarming and, and, and awesome to, to go on the journey with him as he's telling me the story was, was really awesome and a, a real treat for me. So literally an American man who lives in Hartford, Connecticut, um, was able to find out more about his grandfather who served in World War II through a Dutch historian. Why is that information not readily available here in this country, David? So it's interesting. So uh, Mika's explanation is that, um, and I've looked a little bit into it, and it seems to make some sense, is that the history um, of of African Americans in in the military service in those times was sort of, it wasn't necessarily suppressed, but the veterans organizations that existed back then were segregated. Like the VFW, the, um, the American Legion, they didn't allow black members. Now, black members could start their own posts. But they didn't have the sort of legacy of information and knowledge that they would keep about the soldiers. So because of the segregated nature of the military and the segregated nature of the veterans organizations, a lot of that history has sort of been lost. But David's grandmother's suitcase is sort of this treasure trove of information about one soldier. And and it doesn't – you know, might provide some insight into, you know, um, what life was like for most soldiers, but it's really just a specific insight into into David McGee's grandfather's life. And so it really is this sort of bridge between all this history that's been lost, and now we have this just, just like this treasure trove of information about one guy. And so it, it is this sort of bridge that's that's sort of connecting worlds that we might have been lost to, to, this, to this one man who has this really amazing story. You were able to speak with Dutch historian Mika Kierkels uh, for the uh, story you did for National Public Radio. Uh, what did she tell you about, uh, again, the fact that you had these segregated units, uh, these African-Americans serving in World War II, but the images of them uh, largely aren't uh, readily available? We don't think about them when we think about World War II. Right. So, um, so you know, she has done a lot of work gathering information. She's only been able to actually get information on a couple of, of the soldiers buried there, maybe like five or six soldiers. Um, again, because of how history has sort of um, was sort of separated out um, a lot of what those soldiers did. Um, but through this project, you know, she's aiming to reach out to more people. She wants to find more information about these soldiers. She only has basic information, biographical information about these these five or uh, about the 172 black soldiers buried there. So she doesn't have like information about you know uh, where they're. She she knows where they're from, but no information about their story. She doesn't know like you know what they were like. You know where their what their families were like. What what their life was like here in in, in the United States. So. Um, She's slowly figuring that stuff out, and, and people like David, I think, are like a goldmine of information for historians. And here's a, the interview you, a part of the interview that you did. Uh, here's a clip from uh, that interview with Dutch historian Mika Kierkels. White Americans were segregated from the black Americans who also, there were 900,000 in Europe. I mean, why is it not in history books? 
So then this is a, 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 an outsider's view of why we don't know more about African-Americans who served uh, uh, this country. But you also talked about that with David McGee, whose grandfather, um, this is the story we're tracing today here on Where We Live. And, and he told you, um, you know, he, it's not as surprising for him. Let's mm. hear what he told you. You have to really understand the African-American experience to know that part of the history is missing. And that's why this project is so important to me, because it's now being told. The story doesn't end uh, with just this connection um, via the Internet. David McGee actually traveled to the Netherlands? Yeah, so this is where it really becomes very heartwarming. So he, he, him and his wife decided to go to the Netherlands on Memorial Day a couple of years ago. And uh, they realized that there, his he realized that his grandfather's grave was actually adopted by a Dutch couple, and every single grave in the Netherlands is adopted by a Dutch couple. There's actually a waiting list of people who want to adopt a grave, and basically what that means is on special occasions, the families, the adoptees, will go to the graves, they'll lay flowers, um, they take care of it, they just make sure it's you know it's it's kept up. Um, but most of the people who have adopted graves in the Netherlands had no idea if they had adopted a white soldier's grave or a black soldier's grave. Um, and once they found out, a lot of them didn't care, they, but they were just very interested to know that, you know, this was sort of this reality. And so Mika is sort of, you know, bringing this to the forefront. Um, and, and it's in David's case, his grandfather's grave is, is tended to by this one couple. And when they die, they'll give it to their daughter to, to take care of. And he was just really captivated by this. And when he went to their home, he actually saw a photograph of his grandfather framed among the photographs of this family. And so he immediately felt like it was family. And he just, he, the way he describes that was just, is just really heartwarming. We have that clip of David McGee talking about that moment. There's so many emotions that you just can't, that goes through you at one time that it's very difficult to put into words. And, uh, you know, it's a big world out there, but it's a small world. And to know that, you know, Jan and Josh Meats have been tending to his grave and knowing that others are being tended to the same way is, it's hard to put into words. So we hear David McGee telling you again about this Dutch couple, Jan and Josh uh, Meats, is that how you say it? Smeets, yeah. Smeets. Uh, they're the ones that adopted his grandfather's grave. Why are people in the Netherlands so invested in keeping up these graves of these American soldiers? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I was talking with, with Carmen uh, Baskoff, our producer, and we, we talked about how um, you know, a lot of World War II memories are a little bit removed from us here in the United States because, you know, the wars were not fought on our land. But in the Netherlands, you know, that was actually occupied by Germany for some time. And when it was liberated, you know, it was a big deal for the Netherlands. And they want to remember um, that sacrifice. So when the Americans were among the liberating force that came through the Netherlands and a lot of them obviously died in, uh, in that liberation process – you know, they really hold on to that. And it's a really special thing. You know, when we we, actually, we had somebody go to the, we had somebody in the Netherlands um, with Mika um, to, to record interviews with her. And they randomly came across this couple and the couple was talking about the sacrifice of the Americans. And this was just a random day. They just happened to be there. So they're very connected to, uh, to the service that we did over there. And uh, you can see it. And, and, and they just have this real deep connection to, to the soldiers um, who served over there. 
David McGee again of Hartford, Connecticut, learning more about his grandfather who served in World War II, Sergeant Willie Williams. Uh, tell us more about uh, the fact that uh, now that he knows about his grandfather, um, how he's trying to dig into more information about his service and the service of other African Americans. Yeah, you know, Lucy, the story was there was so much treasure, and it's it kind of it was kind of like coming across treasure in a remote space and in a part of the world, and knowing you can only take back you know ten percent of this treasure. That was kind of like how I was trying to tell the story. There's, David has so many pieces of treasure in his story, and one of them that I was not able to, not able to talk about, but is this idea that his grandfather died actually after the peace treaty was signed by Germany, but we were still at war with Japan. So he's trying to figure out what happened. There was an explosion. It was listed as an accident, but he says there was sniper fire happening at the time. So he's curious to know if it actually was you know, an, an enemy, an, an engagement with the enemy incident, in which case his grandfather should be awarded a Purple Heart. So he's trying to figure that out. And, it's, and, and he, so he's still on this journey to try to uncover more. And he has all this information in the suitcase, but he still seems to want more information. And so his journey is actually you know, ongoing. Uh, does David McGee, did he talk to you about, uh, again, uh, after the war when uh, many of these African-Americans that served came back to a country that still saw them as mm. second-class citizens? Right. And that was a big thing um, that uh, this project is is hoping to uncover and that David is trying to learn more about and, and express is that, you know, African-American soldiers were said to be fighting two wars, you know, the war against fascism abroad and the war against segregation and racism here. And that was a, a, a big deal. And, and, and through this project, you know, they're hoping to uncover more of that struggle and, and help, help to educate people. And so we understand, like, what that actually was like for the African-American soldiers who did so much in that war. Mika pointed out 900,000 served and tens of thousands killed or injured. And so bringing that history to the forefront is, is super important for, for David and for Mika Kirkles. David DeRoche is a reporter for Connecticut Public Radio. David, thank you for picking up that call in the newsroom to uncover the story awesome, right? of David McGee in Hartford. You can go to our website, wmpr.org slash where we live, uh, to see a video of uh, David's interview with, again, David McGee talking about his grandfather, Sergeant Willie Williams, who served in World War II. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, November 12th is an important date in the fight for marriage equality. We're going to talk more about the movement that led to Connecticut legalizing same-sex marriage after the break. And you can join us, too. 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today, gay marriage is a legal right nationwide after a 2015 U.S. Supreme Court ruling that overturned state bans on same-sex marriage. Yet the movement for marriage rights took years to accomplish. On this day, 10 years ago, Connecticut was the only the second state in the United States to grant marriage licenses to same-sex couples. Coming up, we'll hear from one of the plaintiff couples in the lawsuit that helped bring marriage equality to Connecticut, Janet Peck and Carol Conklin are Colchester residents who will celebrate their 10-year anniversary anniversary this coming January. We're going to talk with them in a few minutes. Now, if you're in a same-sex relationship, what does this date, November 12th, mean to you? You can join us, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
First, it was the Love Makes a Family nonprofit organization that advocated strongly for gay marriage in Connecticut. And Stanback led the organization, which disbanded in 2009 after its goal was realized in our state, and joins me now in studio. Welcome back to the show. Great to be here, Lucy. I should mention uh, Anne has been uh, working as an activist for more than 30 years uh, with a long history here in Connecticut. Uh, But I remember meeting you as a new reporter uh, when you were founding executive director of Love Makes a Family. Tell us about how you got involved with that organization and when did uh, marriage equality become the goal? I got involved... um probably because I had been very involved in the uh, fight for our non-discrimination law that passed back in 1991. And my uh, partner, now wife, Charlotte, and I, um, I think we always thought we would love to get married um, in the early days, um, you know, 35 years ago. I don't think that we saw it on the horizon. But as states like Hawaii began to um, move cases through their court system, uh, we started thinking this was a reality, and uh, there were several of us who thought, you know, this is Connecticut is a perfect place to to make this uh, a reality. A reality. So um, we really jumped in with both feet. You referenced that 1991 uh, gay rights statute that prohibited prohibited discrimination against LGBTQ uh, individuals in the state. Actually, it was just uh, on the basis of sexual orientation. It took years later to get um, gender identity, but that was in housing, employment, public accommodations. And then later, you worked towards adoption rights for same-sex couples? That's right. In 1999, um, our state Supreme Court ruled against a lesbian couple who was trying to um, get second-parent adoption for the child that they were both raising together. And uh, they ruled against her, but but in essence said, you know, this is something the legislature needs to fix. Love Makes a Family came together at that point as an informal coalition to work on adoption. And within two years, we were able to pass that law. And um, folks felt like we should turn our attention to marriage once adoption was a reality. Mm-hmm. And uh, we did that for the next nine years. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, civil unions came before actual uh, marriage equality in 2005. What did that uh, mean for uh, the gay and lesbian community in Connecticut? And just talk a little bit about the grassroots effort that came around that. Yeah, one of the things that we we did both in the fight for the non-discrimination law and then with adoption and, and even more with marriage was really to reach out around the state and get people telling their stories Um, getting same-sex couples telling their stories, but also getting allies, um, supporting organizations, people of faith to talk about why this was important. Civil unions was uh, a marital status that was invented in the state of Vermont. It did come with all the state rights and protections of marriage, and in in that way, it was an important step. But for Love Makes a Family and, and many of our supporters, it was also sort of a badge of inequality um, because it did not come with the with the word marriage, with the respect and dignity and equality that marriage um, was all about. So um, it was it was a step in the process, but we made very clear that um, unlike what some legislators I think hoped for, you know, that wasn't going to end the conversation on marriage and we kept pushing once civil union was the law. Massachusetts was the first state that uh, allowed uh, same-sex marriage. So when that happened, was that really the catalyst to really get it moving here in Connecticut to try to to get that law here as well? 
We had started our um, campaign um, before marriage uh, had happened in Massachusetts. So um, I think a number of New England states began that work. But certainly after marriage became a reality in Massachusetts, um, I, I think that it was even clearer that civil union was not enough. This is where we live. Uh, you're hearing Ann Stanback uh, here on the show. She was founding executive director of Love Makes a Family. This was uh, the lead organization in the campaign for marriage equality in the state of Connecticut. Uh, Ten years ago today, uh, marriage license began uh, to be uh, given out to gay and lesbian couples who wanted to be married. Uh, one of those uh, couples uh, that became uh, one of the face behind this movement uh, also joined us in studio, Janet Peck and Carol Conklin, and they were one of the plaintiff couples in Connecticut. It's marriage equality case. I want to welcome Janet and Carolyn to our show. Thanks for coming in today. Thanks for having us. So I'll start with you, uh, Janet. Uh, tell us how the two of you met. Oh, gosh, that was so long ago, 43 years ago. We uh, actually had met before that. We uh, were in high school together, and that's where we first met each other, but it went on to do different things. And, and I think when we both came back from college, we kind of got reacqu reacquainted at a, a dinner party. Uh, of mutual friends, and we sat down together uh, next to each other and and started talking. And uh, I always say we, we haven't stopped talking since, or at least <laughs> I haven't. I talk more than Carol. Uh, and, we, you know, we've, we've been together ever since. That's kind of what what began our relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm curious, when we heard Anne kind of walking us through the different steps uh, on the way uh, to marriage equality in Connecticut, uh, when did the two of you get involved uh, with this campaign? Uh, we actually became members um, of Love Makes a Family first. Um, weren't quite as active right right in the beginning, but when we start, when we heard of that of Love Makes a Family being formed, we started uh, paying attention. Um, but when we really got involved was when we became plaintiffs, and when the Massachusetts ca case happened, that's when I started thinking that was the best way to and the quickest way to get uh, marriage here in Connecticut and. And I was correct. Um, that was the quickest way. Um, and that's when we really re started getting involved. Um, and, and as a plaintiff, um, we, we would not just be telling our, our case or making our case to the courts, but also um, interfacing with the media, telling our story to the media and to the people in Connecticut. And after that, um, you know, sometimes in a court case, it's, you, you're, there's a lot of time where you're not doing much of anything. You're waiting for the decisions to come down. Um, we also became uh, speakers in Love Makes a Family, which gave us access to speaking in uh, a wide range of places so that we could help people to understand why it is that marriage was, why it was that marriage was so important to us. Oh, Carol, can I ask, was it difficult to be uh, one of the faces in this fight for marriage equality? Uh I don't think it was difficult. I'm pretty shy, so it was, you know, something I had to think about, but I thought it was really important that we do it, so I agreed. <laughs> were there, uh, uh, I'll go back to you, Janet, were there friends or family that were concerned about um, uh, you being in the, in the public eye like this? Uh, not, no, I don't think so. I, I think they were all pretty proud of us more than anything, and they thought that we, we would be a good representation. Um, um, telling our stories. Um, we've always had support from our families uh, from almost, almost our entire relationship. So I think they were just overall very supportive of us. 
Uh, you mentioned uh, having that support from friends and family, but that's not the case for, for everyone. No, it's not. Um, can you talk about uh, what it meant uh, for um, your friends uh, who were gay or lesbian, this idea that you know, maybe one day they'd be able to legally marry. It might not have been something they thought about um, as they were growing up, but they'd have that right. I think it's interesting. I think the reactions were across the board. I think there were people who were very, very excited about it. And some people sort of had to think about it a little bit to, because they'd never had to think about it before. You know, they'd been together for a long time, and that's the way they were living. And, and so I think, uh, you know, some people maybe hesitated. But it was interesting as soon as we got the right to marry, so the cha- many of them changed their minds, and I think most of all our friends are married now um, and are happily married. You're hearing uh, Janet Peck. Uh, she's here with her wife, Carol Conklin. They were plaintiffs in Connecticut's marriage equality case uh, on where we live. We're reflecting back uh, 10 years ago today uh, when that uh, right became a reality. Um, if you're one of those same-sex couples uh, waiting for that moment uh, in 2008, uh, we want to hear from you, too. The number 860-275-7266. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, John's calling from Killing Leap. John, uh, welcome to the show. Hi. So tell us about uh, November 12, 2008, what it meant for you. Well, do you know, I actually grew up in Georgia. And so I remember watching the headlines from afar, wishing that this could actually happen in my own home state. I didn't move to Connecticut until 2012 for to take a job. And one of the um, things that pulled me up here was the potential to marry the person I loved without having to fight for it in quite the same way. And I'm so grateful uh, for those who fought that fight on my behalf uh, before I even thought about moving to Connecticut. Thank you, thank you, thank you for filing the lawsuit, for advocating for people like me um, and for themselves, of course, to make this kind of difference and change in our world. John, could you uh, tell us uh, when uh, you and your husband were married? We were married in December of 2014. Uh, we are actually both pastors. I'm at Westfield Church in Killingly, Connecticut. He is at uh, Thompson Congregational United Church of Christ in Thompson, Connecticut. Um, he had just moved up here, and we decided to get married, and we got married in my very own church with my entire congregation present, and it was such a joyful day, um, such a celebration. Well, thank you, John, uh, for calling in here on Where We Live. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. And you were giving a thumbs up when you heard uh, John's story, uh, one of many um, who were happy to be living in Connecticut, uh, to be in a state that, uh, you know, recognized, uh, you know, these rights uh, for them. Um, When we hear about Massachusetts being the first in this, uh, again, this movement that kept growing here in Connecticut, um, as you got closer to November 12th. So uh, walk us through. So it's this U.S. It was the state Supreme Court here in Connecticut that ruled first. And then uh, how did it all come down uh, through to November 12th? It was like a month between, right? Yeah. And I think what's uh, a lot of people either don't know or forget is that we had four long years where Massachusetts was the only state with marriage. And state after state um, had lawsuits that got uh, that lost. And, you know, we would wait on Maryland, we would wait on New Jersey, we would wait on New York, and they kept losing, losing, losing. And so we had one state with marriage and one state with civil union. And it was it was really significant when Connecticut um, added another marriage state to the to the to the winning column. Um, we we got the decision um, in October. And uh, 
at, then we had the election um, where we had to fight off uh, every 20 years in Connecticut, there's a question on the ballot about whether or not to open up our constitution for constitutional amendments. And we were afraid that our opponents was, were going to use that as a way to take away this right we had just gotten. So we had been organizing um, around the state to ask people to vote no on that question. And um, we had a, a resounding victory. And then 10 days later, a uh, couple started to marry. And then we, um, we had a few more states who um, won the freedom to marry in, in the sub subsequent years. But I think it was very important um, as the second state that we kept the momentum going for the national movement. How did it impact uh, advocates and activists here when uh, California Prop 8 uh, was passed? Yeah, so, so actually California was briefly the second state um, and they had this little window of victory um, that got snatched away with the passage of Prop 8, that same election that Barack Obama um, was first elected president and we defeated our constitutional question. Um, Prop 8 was um, you know, front of mind to, to most um, people in our community and it was, a, it was devastating um, and it took them a long time to, to come back. But um, sometimes uh, bad things can uh, raise the attention um, on an issue and I think that people realize you know, this, this is not inevitable. We have to fight and we have to speak up and I think more people came out. Um, more allies stood up and spoke out, and uh, it, it's it's taken all of that to get to where we got in 2015 when uh, the U.S. Supreme Court finally ruled in the Obergefell case that um, every same-sex couple in this country um, had the right to, to legally marry. Remind us uh, what the opponents were saying uh, during this fight for marriage equality. They had an evolving narrative of... Um, uh, opposing arguments. Um, certainly the, the most common one was a religious argument that um, this was against the will of God. And I think one of the things that was so important for our campaign was that we you know, gradually got more and more clergy and people of faith standing with us so that our opponents didn't have a monopoly on religion. And um, so, so that was a very um, constant message that we heard. We also heard, well, this has never happened before. So, you know, it's, it's obviously meant never to happen in the future. Um, one argument that our opponents used was um, that, you know, every child deserved a mother and a father. And I think that the parents that uh, came to the Capitol and talked to legislators and told their stories um, proved that what's important is to have loving, committed parents, and the gender was not as important as the quality of that parenting. So we were able to, um, I think, dispel most of those arguments. I think that that the biggest thing was that legislators were afraid, and um, sometimes legislators, elected officials, are leaders, and sometimes um, they're followers. And I think we had to get to a certain level of support in the state before more elected officials were willing to move beyond civil union to support full marriage equality. You're listening to Where We Live. Uh, again, we're reflecting back uh, 10 years since same-sex marriage was legalized in the state of Connecticut. As Ann Stanback mentioned, Connecticut was the second state uh, to legalize same-sex marriage. We want to hear from you, too. 860-275-7266. Jody's calling from New Haven. Jody, go ahead. 
Hey, hi. I, I just want to call out to Love Makes a Family and Anne and her group. Um, uh, even prior to the civil union and marriage discussion, there was a discussion around adoption of um, same-sex couples having children. And my partner and I of 14 years at that time, uh, and this is back in the mid-90s, um, had been together for 14 years, and we had decided that we wanted to have a child together. Um, my partner carried the child, but um, it was kind of unnerving to me. I had great faith in our love, um, but at the same time, because I did not carry the child, I had no legal right whatsoever, so God forbid anything happened. Um, my daughter would have not been able to see me or anything else, um, especially after baby Z. I know that we were moving that way, and Love Makes This Family really came in, and I was one of those parents um, with a year-and-a-half-old daughter that did go um, to uh, the legislature and, you know, stand with Love Makes a Family um, and listen to the arguments of why I shouldn't be a mom. Um, so long before civil union and marriage, there was co-parent adoption, which um, came after my daughter was born. Um, but I, if that hadn't happened... Again, this decision that my partner and I had made to have a child, um, I wouldn't have any legal rights to my daughter whatsoever, and she could have been gone one night and never come back to see me again. Um, You know, as gay couples, we're not anywhere, you know, above what happens in marriages of same-sex couples. Um, And so I'm great, gratefully, very, very thankful for Love Makes a Family and everything that they did to protect my legal rights to a daughter that I chose to bring in this world with my partner. Well, thank you, Jody, for sharing a little bit of your story. And you want to respond? Thank you. That's really heartwarming, Jody, and I appreciate you sharing that story. And there were so many, so many parents um, who had your same fears, um, you know, fears of what would happen if the couple broke up, but also fears if the, if the child had an emergency, ended up in a hospital, um, a problem at school, and that parent would not have the right to be with that child and make decisions. So adoption was, was an important first step. And um, it's, I think what's really heartening now is how many young people today just take that for granted, um, take the fact that, you know, I have so many, so many parents who tell me that their kids are like, what? You couldn't, you know, you couldn't adopt, you couldn't get married. I can't imagine a world where that wouldn't, wouldn't be possible. So it's, it's nice that, uh, that they think that. You're listening to Where We Live again as we reflect back uh, 10 years since Connecticut legalized same-sex marriage. Uh, what did November 12, 2008 mean to you? You can join us, 860-275-7266. Christine's calling from Southington. Christine, go ahead. Christine, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Go ahead with your question or comment. Hi, um, my wife and I were had a catastrophic accident, and I couldn't put her on my insurance. And because of the accident, it's considered a pre-existing condition. We couldn't get her insurance. The only way we could get her insurance was to send her back to school for another master's and put her on the school's policy. So there were more. It was financial things. I mean, we spent thousands on insurance for her. So this was prior to uh, the marriage equality law in effect that that you had to deal with this uh, uh, this system that didn't rep- didn't recognize uh, you and your wife uh, as being together. Correct. 
And and now that uh, the, the same-sex marriage has been legalized, uh, tell us about your life today, Christine. Um, she's relearning to walk. It's been 20 years, but um, it's been a series of surgeries and um, procedures and all sorts of other happy stuff. And she's, she uses a chair at times. It's all good. We adapt. Mm. Well, thank you, Christine. We're glad to hear um, that she's doing better. Um, I wanted to turn back to uh, the plaintiff couple in studio with us. That would be Janet Peck and Carol Conklin. They were one of the plaintiff's uh, couples that sued uh, Connecticut uh, for uh, same-sex marriage. And uh, Janet, uh, you mentioned that you and Carol have been together for 43 years. So even before this law uh, came onto the books, you yourself dealt with uh, a medical issue and Carol wasn't able to see you? Yes, that's true. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> I was uh, started having health issues about 20 years into our relationship, and I was uh, I was in a hospital after surgery uh, to remove tumors from my liver. It was major life-threatening surgery, and I ended up in intensive care unit. And Carol came up to visit me, and she wasn't allowed access to my room. Um, I uh, she gave uh, the the nurse asked her, you know, who she was. Carol said, "I'm her partner," and. That sort of didn't mean anything. And the nurse kept saying, well, you have to be family in order to get into intensive care. I believe Carol pulled the power of attorney, uh, which we thought would be protect us during those times. And the, the nurse said, well, that says you can make decisions on Janet's behalf, but you still are not considered family. You can't get into her room. And I know this was very distressing time for Carol. Um, and so all those things go away now that we're married. I've had a couple of surgeries since. And Carol's always been able to be by my side, no questions asked. And it, it really gives us a, um, you know, a sense of security and, and peace of mind uh, to be able to be married and, and uh, not have those kind of discriminatory things happening to us anymore. Uh, Anne Stanback, I remember um, after Connecticut legalized same-sex marriage, there were still fears among same-sex couples because depending on if you traveled and you happened to be in a state that didn't recognize uh, your marriage uh, or civil union, um, that it was precarious at times. And you would worry about a situation um, that we heard from our guests where um, their partners weren't able to even see them in a hospital. That's right. We could travel to Massachusetts. We could travel to Canada. And those were about the only two places that we were safe. The Netherlands, too, I think. Um, but uh, we we all, you know, if we were careful, we carried a big stack of papers with us um, and hoped that if anything, God forbid, happened, that they would protect us. I think that those those stories are important to show that in times of, of crisis, that um, marriage is a legal status um, and and we need to be able to have the security that comes with that that civil legal status. But the truth is that most same-sex couples get married for the same reasons that most heterosexual couples get. Um, it's great to be able to get insurance. It's great to be able to visit in the hospital. But we get married because we fall in love and we want to um, make a life together and have that, that public um, uh, recognition. And uh, that's why civil union wasn't enough. That's why we needed marriage. Before we head to break, I wanted to turn back to you, Janet. Uh, you mentioned Carol um, trying to assist you when you were dealing with medical issues, and now you're helping uh, Carol as well through a, a health condition that has uh, popped up since your marriage. Yes, unfortunately, Carol's been diagnosed with the uh, early Alzheimer's um, disease, uh, which has been very difficult for us. 
Um, but again, we have the peace of mind now that we have protections moving forward on this journey. Um, um, if, if we had not been married, and uh, at some point I know I will need help taking care of Carol, I won't be able to do it by myself, I'm going to have to pay for that care, care and we are not rich people, um, that at some point um, um, I will need help. And um, in it, without marriage, uh, our, to pay for that care, we could deplete all of our savings and our house would have to be sold to help pay for that care. Now that we're married, that can't happen. Um, Medicaid will kick in, um, and we will be able to keep our home. We'll be able to keep a, a portion of our savings. So again, it's about that peace of mind um, moving forward as we go through this, this difficult journey. I, I would echo what, what Ann just said about getting married, too. Certainly, um, the rights and protections are important to us. But Carol and I wanted to get married first because we loved each other, um, first and foremost. We fell in love. She's the love of my life, um, and, and that's why we wanted to get married. I would also like to, to say to John, the first caller, that it warms my heart to hear him talk about being able to, to marry. Whenever I hear people um, that we're able to marry and have this right now, it absolutely warms my heart. Um, I am proud to be one of the plaintiffs, and it was an honor to be one of the plaintiff couples uh, representing so many people um, that wanted to marry, people that would work together longer than we had been together, um, and also that young people now have that choice. It's, 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 it was an honor. Janet Peck is here with her wife, Carol Conklin. Carol, I understand your wedding anniversary is coming up in a few months? Uh... <laughs> Not the wedding anniversary. Yes, the wedding anniversary, <laughs> January 24th. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yep, a couple months. Still have time to plan I'm that celebration. The, we just had our regular anniversary. Yes. <laughs> yeah. What happens when you're a same-sex couple is you have more than one anniversary. And our wedding anniversary, yes, is coming up in January, but we just celebrated when we first got together, which was in September. So, Well, congratulations to both of you. Thank we appreciate you, you coming in uh, to tell us your story. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, Janet Peck and Carol Conklin, one of the plaintiff couples in Connecticut's marriage equality case. Also here with us, Ann Stanback, a longtime activist. When we come back after the break, we're going to reflect on LGBTQ rights today and the next fight. You can join us too, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, today we've been reflecting back on the movement to bring marriage equality to Connecticut. Uh, one of the plaintiff couples is here with us, Janet Peck and Carol Conklin. And also with us is Ann Stanback, who was founding executive director of Love Makes a Family. This was the lead organization in Connecticut that lobbied for marriage equality. And Ann's been working on LGBTQ issues for more than 30 years. And we just have a few minutes, but I wanted to reflect back on how public opinion really changed in the matter of a couple of decades, uh, when we think about how uh, many Americans were opposed to the idea of same-sex uh, marriage in 2000, but now not so much. Now not so much. And I think that, you know, one thing I just want to say from the last segment, it really was a movement um, that made this possible. It wasn't one organization. I mean, nice things have been said about Love Makes a Family and so it was a wonderful grassroots movement. Um, GLAD, which was the, the legal organization that brought the Kerrigan case, um, you know, was, you know, the 
just brilliant strategist, um, both in Connecticut and across the country. And um, we wouldn't be where we are without GLAD's work, without the work of so many organizations. I, I think that that movement aspect, though, is what changed public opinion. I mean, we see our country so divided now, but I think on an issue as controversial as marriage equality, um, that people were really afraid to come out and support, um, we have a more con- comfortable margin of, of public support than many other controversial issues. So I think it, talk, it speaks to the importance of that public education, of having those conversations and talking one-on-one with your friends and neighbors and family. Um, We were talking about uh, the movements that are important today, and one is just visibility on the rights of of transgender people. Uh, Tell us about the work that's being done, Anne. Yeah, I think that um, today the the uh, the fight for you know respect and dignity and safety for transgender people and housing and employment and the list goes on and on is still one that we all need to be um, working on and and promoting. Um, many people probably saw that in Massachusetts um, on election day, they overwhelmingly passed a um, or de- defeated a, a ballot question that would have taken away uh, the rights of transgender people. Um, they did that um, successfully in the same way that we successfully won the right to marry, which was they had transgender people coming out, telling their stories. Um, and you know, putting a human face on an issue that was very unfamiliar to a lot of people. So um, I think we've seen the advance um, and visibility of the transgender community um, in this last 10 years in really remarkable, wonderful ways. Um, but there is a lot of work to do, and I think that is especially true with young you know, transgender and gender nonconforming and gender queer kids who, um, you know, have a whole new language and whole new issues that they are um, facing in schools and in society. When you talk about more work to be done, uh, you know, many states uh, coming up with these bathroom bills, uh, so to speak, but some states have had to walk them back like North Carolina. Like my home state of North Carolina. And again, in the same way that Prop 8 um, really made people realize, um, wow, there's a lot of uh, hate out there. There's a lot of misinformation we saw with North Carolina and with some of these bathroom bills that um, the fight continues and uh, we, we, have not, we have not won. Well, I want to thank Ann Stanback again, uh, who was the founding executive director of Love Makes a Family. I understand your archives are at Yale University, the, uh, all this history about the movement to bring uh, marriage equality uh, to the state of Connecticut. We thank you for joining us today, Ann. Great to be here, Lucy. Thank you. Also, Janet Peck and Carol Conklin, uh, one of several plaintiff couples who sued the state of Connecticut for the right to marry. Thank you for coming in and sharing your story. Thank we you. appreciate uh, hearing from both of you. Thanks. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Thanks to Lydia Brown and Kion Wolf. Learn more about the show, wmpr.org slash where we live. 